Well, I don't know whether you're a sports fan. Um, it's always a bit of a roller coaster, isn't it, being a, a supporter of our national sports teams? Um, but it's kind of an exciting time for British sports. A big weekend, isn't it? We've got a couple of players through to the fourth round at Wimbledon, if you're following what's going on in SW19. Uh, it's the British Grand Prix this afternoon. Um, but my personal highlight is definitely the Test Cricket. I don't know whether we've got any other Test Cricket fans here. Um, there's not many things I miss, to be honest, about living in London, which is where we lived before we moved here. But one thing I definitely miss is my brother and I used to go and spend a day at the Test every summer. And uh, that was a real highlight. Now, if church was like Test Cricket, um, which I suppose in some ways it is, people who don't like it sort of moan about it lasting forever and they don't understand what's going on. Um, but if church was like Test Cricket, um, would the Sunday service represent the game? Yeah, my brother and I, we would go over, we sit in the cheap seats and we spend the day, we really are spectators watching the participants on the field. Uh, we are up there watching the action unfold, the professionals are the ones doing the job, and we spend time there and then we go back to our lives. Or is all of life like the game? And the Sunday service is actually a little bit like lunch. Now, if you watch Test Cricket, you know they break for lunch. They take an hour out of the game. The players all come inside to be nourished by a meal, given an inspirational few words from the captain before they are sent back out. Now, we're continuing on our journey, carrying on through Luke's Gospel. We're in the sort of middle chapters of Luke's Gospel. It's just worth us reminding ourselves that actually, if you read Luke, you discover he's not writing you know, a, a fairy story or myths or legends long ago, far away. He actually was writing really careful history. Luke tells us at the beginning of his Gospel that he carefully investigated everything. He spoke to the eyewitnesses and he wrote an ordered account as a historian. And in this passage that we've got to today, actually, I think we're going to see that Jesus wants the church to be a little bit more like the second scenario than the first. He actually, what he wants us to see is that sending out is a really, really important part of what church is supposed to be all about. He doesn't want there to be any spectators, actually. We're all to be participants. If you've got Luke 10 open there, you can see the title is Jesus sends out the 72. And that word send is our key word for this morning. We're going to see four things I want us to see from this passage. Firstly, that God sends. Secondly, why God sends. Thirdly, how God sends. And fourthly, who God sends. So that God sends, why God sends, how God sends, and who God sends. So first of all, that God sends. And if there's a key word in this uh, passage, it's the word send, as we've already said. It comes three times here in verses 1, 2, and 3. Have a look down. Verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them. Verse 2, he told them the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Verse 3, he tells them, go, go. I am sending you like lambs amongst wolves. Send, send, send. Now, um... Sending is actually a key attribute of God's character. God, the theologians tell us, he's a sending God. That's one of the things God does, he sends. It's a function, really, of the generosity and the love of God. For God so loved the world that he 
sent his son into the world. I mean, he said to his son, in effect, verse 3, go, I am sending you like a lamb. So God sent the son into the world, and then Jesus sends his people into the world. That's what happened if you look back a page to Luke chapter 9. Jesus sent out 12 He sent the 12 apostles out, and now in this chapter, in chapter 10, he's sending another group out. Only one chapter later, he's sending a much larger group than just the first 12 who went. He's sending them. Now, um, I don't pretend to be any kind of linguist, um, but this word send, actually, is quite an interesting word. Um, In Greek, which the New Testament was written in Greek, it's the word apostello, from which we get the word apostle. Uh, Apostle is one of these sort of churchy words, isn't it? You might wonder, what does that mean? Actually, it just means somebody who's sent The 12 apostles were the ones who were sent by Jesus. That's why they were apostles. Um, It's actually the same word um, in Latin, which for about a thousand years of the church's history, until they translated it into all the languages of Europe, the main translation of the Bible was in Latin. And this word send was, uh, I think it's miso, um, from which you get the word, well, it means to send. If you send a letter to somebody, it's a missive or if you send somebody in your stead, he's an emissary, or a missile is something that's sent, isn't it? And so miso, which is the word from which we get mission, means to be sent. So God is interested in sending people. He sends apostles. He sends them on mission. Go, 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 he says. Now, what's interesting to me is that I think a lot of our churches, what we're actually more interested in doing is saying, come, isn't it? Actually, <laughs> we, we say to people, we want them to come, but God actually wants to say to his people, go. You know, the New Testament never actually really tells us, how can we get those people to come here? Wouldn't we love to see people come to church? I would, I'd love to see this church grow. But the way Jesus actually goes about that task is not by saying to, to people, how can we get people to come is how can we get our people to go? So God sends, firstly. Secondly, why? Why does God send? Well, he tells us why he's sending these uh, 72 in verse 2. Have a look down at verse 2. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And in case it isn't immediately obvious, when Jesus starts talking about harvests, um, it's a metaphor. And Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he's forever talking about fields and harvests and crops and, and farmers and seeds and fruit and, and harvests. I mean, parable after parable, he's telling the parable of the four different types of soil or the parable of the wheat and the tares. Or He's always going on about harvest. And in all of these parables, the field represents the whole world. And the soil represents the people in the world, the seed represents the gospel, and the harvest represents the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So we sing, I was reminded of that famous hymn that we sing at harvest time, where we actually, yes, we're singing about that God has provided our food, but we also say what the harvest is pointing forward to. We sing, even so, Lord, quickly come, bring thy final harvest home, gather thou thy people in. That's what the harvest is, it's people free from sorrow, free from sin. So that's what Jesus wants to see. He wants to see a harvest. He wants to see people come to faith. He wants to see people find peace with God. He wants to see people find salvation to inherit eternal life, all meaning the same thing. He wants the church to grow. That's what I want to see as well. 
I don't know about you, I hope you want the same thing. I want to see the church grow in our day, don't you? And Jesus says, well, look, the harvest out there is plentiful. In other words, there's lots of people. And if that was true in Jesus's day, how much more must it be true now? We've got a town of nearly 40,000 people is what I've heard of the population of Melksham. 40,000 people. Now, I was trying to work out how big a population was Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And what the historians tell us is that actually 40,000 people is roughly equivalent to a large city in Roman times. Actually, Jerusalem, it would have been not much more than 40,000. And for much of the history of London, the population has been around that kind of number. So we actually, our, our town, our little old town of Melksham, when Jesus said there's a plentiful harvest out there, well, the harvest here is much, much, much greater In lots of ways, I think what Jesus says here, if anything, is more relevant and more applicable to us today than it was to the people who originally heard this. So Jesus says the the harvest is plentiful, but, verse 2, the workers are few. And so Jesus, why does he want to send people? Jesus wants more workers for the harvest. Now, again, what's interesting to me is many churches are kind of set up basically to be a bit of a one-man band, aren't they? Where the Church of England actually is particularly bad at this. There's kind of an assumption in the Church of England that the vicar does everything. You know, that the minister is the one who ought to be doing all the ministry. Now, I don't do myself out of a job. (laughs) Obviously, I believe in people getting ordained, and I believe in ministers doing ministry. But what's interesting about this is Jesus wasn't a one-man band, was he? I mean, you'd have thought if anybody could be a one-man band, it would be the Son of God incarnate, the Lord of glory, omnipotent, omniscient. You know, if anybody can get on with it himself, it would be Jesus. But no, look at verse 1. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them, two by two, ahead of him to go to every town and place where he was about to go. Isn't that extraordinary? He was going there anyway. Why on earth did he bother rounding up this rabble and telling them, will you please go ahead and warm them all up? You know, what a load of hassle to try to get all of these disciples together. I mean, if you read the Gospels, the disciples don't cover themselves in glory. I mean, they weren't the smartest a lot of the time. They were constantly putting their foot in it. They were constantly getting it wrong. And uh, they were constantly saying the wrong thing. Wouldn't it be much easier if Jesus actually said, you know what, I'll just do it myself. But if he'd have done that... What would have happened after his ascension? Jesus would have ascended to heaven. The disciples would have all sat there twiddling their thumbs and go, well, what do we do now? Instead, they did what they had been told to do right from the beginning. They went. So if Jesus wasn't a one-man band, then we shouldn't be either. And I believe that to the degree that churches revert to this bad model of the vicar doing everything and the minister doing all the ministry and leaving it to the professionals. To the degree that churches do that, the church will stagnate and eventually die, which I think is what is happening in this country with churches which are pursuing this bad, non-biblical model. Why does Jesus send? He wants workers. Okay, we might be getting nervous, right? Well, just before we think about who Jesus is sending, let's think, how is he sending his people? Just five quick observations. How does Jesus want to send his people out on a mission? Well, look down at verse 1. He wants them to go together. He sent them two by two. I think that's pretty sensible, isn't it? 
Uh, we want to establish a pastoral visiting team or re-establish a pastoral visiting team here in this parish. I think it's a good principle for people to go out in pairs, for kind of encouragement, for support, uh, for safety. He wants them to go together. He wants them to go prayerfully. Look at verse 2. He, he told them, look, the harvest is plentiful, the works are few, so what should we do? Ask. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Hannah and I have got an alarm on our phone at the moment. It goes off every afternoon praying for people to come and help, particularly with the kids' work, which is growing. As we were saying earlier, it's amazing to see that it's growing. But we need people to roll their sleeves up and muck in because there's such a great big harvest of children. In this parish, there are six primary schools in our town. So many children and families who we would love to see meet Jesus. We've got to pray, haven't we? He wants them to go prayerfully. He wants them to go confidently. Have a look at verse 3. <laughs> this is terrifying. He says, go, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Now, is Jesus mad? Have you seen a lamb? Uh, have you seen a wolf? I mean, the last thing a lamb needs is to go to the wolves, isn't it? They're not going to last very long. Who do you back in a fight against a lamb versus a wolf? But the only way this could possibly be a good idea is if Jesus, as he teaches elsewhere, is going to be a good shepherd to go with his lambs so that we don't need to fear. We can be confident. Uh, he wants them to go forthly, urgently. Look at verse 4. He says, don't greet anyone on the road. Why does he say that? Well, I guess he must mean that they've got to be completely focused on what they're trying to do. Now, I stop and speak to anybody in the street. I don't think that's exactly necessarily the point. He wants them to be urgent. He wants them to be focused. Same as in verse 7. He says, well, you go to somebody's house, stay there eating and drinking, but don't move around from house to house. In other words, oh, I'll have a bit of a meal here, a bit of a meal there. I'm taking my time. No, he's saying be urgent, be focused. But fifthly, I think most importantly, possibly, look at verse 5. He wants them to go peacefully. He says, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your, your peace will rest on them. Now, it's not exactly a shock to us, is it, this morning? Our world isn't particularly peaceful. Um, and often discussions about big subjects like politics or Brexit or COVID or religion, they're not particularly peaceful discussions, are they? They're rather combative. But Jesus wants his disciples to be peaceful. He's the prince of peace, after all. And so I think as he sends his disciples on a mission, he wants them to be peaceful. I think this is hugely encouraging because actually, I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of banging your head up against a brick wall of somebody who just wants a fight or just doesn't want to know. Jesus says, well, that's okay. Verse uh, 10, you go somewhere you're not welcomed. You don't have to stay there. You can leave. And that's actually a real encouragement to me. What we're actually after, verse 6, is he says, people of peace. Someone who promotes peace. That's what you're after. If you're trying to share your faith, he just go to the people who actually want to hear. The people who are peaceful. Well, finally, who does God send? And we might have been sitting here thinking, well, this is all very nice for people like Katie going off to get ordained. But this has nothing to do with me. I haven't got the least interest in going anywhere. I might be a lamb. 
Uh, But I'm certainly not going into any wolves. I much prefer the picture of test cricket where I just get to go and watch and leave it to the professionals. I don't want to put my pads on and go out to bat out there. Surely we might be thinking, well, isn't Jesus talking to a special group? The keen beans, the people who are thinking about getting ordained, you know, the, the super Christians. Well, actually, there's not a lot in the New Testament about being a super Christian. There's not in the lot in the New Testament about getting ordained. Jesus doesn't really anywhere actually make a distinction between people who are ordained and people who aren't ordained. There's no distinction between ordinary Christians, kind of beginner-level Christians, and, and, and super-Christians. That's not a distinction that Jesus makes. Who's Jesus talking to here? I love verse 1. Look, at, look down at the word that, Jesus used, well, that Luke uses to describe the people who Jesus is talking to. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others others don't you love that what does that what kind of picture does that conjure up in your mind when you think of they were others you know they were pretty ordinary i think don't you these were just people who'd sort of put their hand up and said yeah okay i'll go i think they were a fairly ragtag bunch yeah there were all sorts of people who were probably thinking well haven't we got enough apostles already previous chapter you've already sent 12 haven't isn't that enough jesus says no i want you as well And look at the message that they're to share with people. Verse 9, what are they to say? The kingdom of God has come near. And in verse 11, the kingdom of God has come near. So I think all the people that Jesus wants to send are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, we pray that, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come. I think the way that God wants to answer that prayer is by using the citizens of his kingdom to be the ones who he sends. So I guess it leaves us with the question whether we are citizens of God's kingdom. Is God our king? If he is, then he wants us to go. Let's pray.